The Legacy of Charity's Children Fire Watchers in the Free Northwest Territory To Be a Slave Written by Julius Lester, 1968 To be a slave To be owned by another person As a car, house, or a table is owned To live as a piece of property that could be sold, a child sold from its mother, a wife from her husband, to be considered not human but but a thing that plowed the fields, cut the wood, cooked the food, nursed another's child, a thing whose sole function was determined by the one who owned you. To be enslaved, to know despite the suffering and deprivation that you were human, more human than he who said you were not human, to know joy, laughter, sorrow, and tears, and yet be considered only the equal of a table, the backdrop to black life in the Ohio Free Northwest Territory. The first free state was not free, despite in 1802 the abolition of slavery being written into the Constitution. The proximity to Western Virginia and Kentucky attracted the emancipated and the fleeing enslaved. So the state took action in 1804 to curb what was seen as a rising black population. Black codes or laws were enacted in June of that year to discourage African-American migration to the state. The codes or laws required, in part, Every black or mulatto person residing within this state, on or before the fifth day of June, 1,804, shall enter his or her name, together with the name or names of his or her children, in the clerk's office in the county in which he, she, or they reside, which shall be entered on record by said clerk. And thereafter, the clerk's certificate of such record shall be sufficient evidence of his, her, or their freedom. And for every entry and certificate, the person obtaining the same shall pay to the clerk twelve and a half cents. other discriminatory and stifling statutes, the law required fines be levied against anyone who employed someone who did not have free papers certified with the county seal. Still, businesses, factories, mills that attempted to hire free black workers were met with walkouts or riots from a white workforce threatened by competition from ambitious black men. The Ohio Black Laws were reinforced around 1807 to require blacks who entered the state post a bond of $500 to guarantee good behavior. This was selectively, sometimes even strategically, enforced. Cincinnati leaders in 1829 noticed a growing black population and colored citizens were ordered to pay the bond within 30 days or leave the city, disrupting families, 
leaving established homes and livelihoods. This fueled migration further north to Detroit and Canada that may have deposited a few black citizens, even businesses in Dayton, contributing to the prosperous and envied growth of a black canal community there that was referred to as Africatown. The Miami Canal began at Mad River and followed Mill Creek to Cincinnati. It was built through the 1820s and 30s by a mostly black workforce. These routes around 1829 connected Dayton not only to Cincinnati but to the world, causing the town to gain population and commercial prosperity. It also made the town a logical and significant route within the Underground Railroad. This is the backdrop, the backstory to the attack on Africatown. What remains of Dayton's Black Codes is titled The Montgomery Common Pleas Stray Book Number One and Record of Free Negroes. Only the first five to six copied pages of the faded, tattered records remain. Original records or a full transcription are said to no longer exist. The Montgomery Common Pleas Stray Book, yes, as in stray animals. Book number one, indicating there may have been or could be others. It begins in August of 1804 and ends February 1805. Our known family names are not listed within these few rescued pages. Some entries are simply stated. August 14th, 1804. Reuben Wagner, a free Negro man about 26 years old, enters his name of record and also the names of Margaret, his wife, and sons Elijah and Benjamin. August 14th. Hannah Wagner, a free black woman, mother of Reuben, enters her name of record. Other entries are heartbreaking like Sarah Ball, whose name is entered into record on Christmas Eve, 1804. December 24th, 1804. Sarah Ball, a Negro woman of 30 years old, by her indenture from Andrew Wood to Colonel Robert Patterson, assigned by Patterson to James Brown, by him to Richard Meredith, by him to David Stout, and by him, Sarah Ball, to the consideration herein mentioned, enters her name of record. To be clear, the term indenture was commonly used to facilitate, to uh, provide cover for illegally holding the enslaved. Sarah Ball, by the recorded age of 30, <laughs> our research indicates she was possibly only 20 years old at the time. Dear Sarah, had been owned by at least five men of record in Montgomery County, owned by and assigned to. It's gut-wrenching. Gut-wrenching as historical perspective provides context 
for this human trafficking. Also within the few rescued pages are records of court proceedings detailing disputes over human property in the first free state. Colonel Robert Patterson, relocated to Dayton from Lexington, Kentucky, supposedly because of an opposition to slavery. However, he lived in hypocrisy, bringing with him to the free state human beings. And once in Ohio, he fought to continue to keep them in bondage. This included Sarah Ball, a man named Moses, who Patterson asserted absconded, and the enslaved couple, Edward and Lucy Page. Ned and Luce Page, along with Moses, were encouraged by Dayton's white abolitionists to leave the Patterson homestead to pursue their rightful freedom, and they were also given assistance that included legal representation. In the case of Mr. and Mrs. Page, the state of Ohio, Montgomery County Common Pleas, issued writs of habeas corpus directing Patterson to produce a certain black man named Edward Page, alias Ned, and a certain black woman named Lucy Page, alias Luce. Patterson filed conflicting responses to the writs, eventually alleging their indentured servitude, but evidence was produced that proved he had held them as enslaved while in Kentucky. Montgomery County Records faded, reprinted records state in part. It appears to the court from the returns of said writs and the allegations of the said Colonel, Robert Patterson, in his justification, that there is no just cause of detaining the said persons. It continues to declare, the persons therein named are unjustly detained in slavery, contrary to the laws and constitution of the state of Ohio, and the said Edward and Lucy being present in court in their own proper persons and by their attorneys, claiming the privilege of the laws and constitution of the state. The court do order and direct that said Edward and Lucy be liberated under the seal of the court. The seal certified their freedom. Ohio historian Sherry Gowdy Patterson tried multiple times to have Ned and Lucy captured and taken back to Kentucky, resulting in arrests and court cases against Patterson and his conspirators. He and his own son were arrested for assault in connection with attempted kidnappings. Evidence of hunted blackness found in salvaged, copied pages of faded, tattered records rescued within Montgomery County archives, providing further evidence that human chattel were bought, sold, traded, and assigned in all corners of America. 19th century black life in Ohio's free Northwest Territory was not free. This is the backdrop, the backstory, the extenuating circumstances surrounding the attacks on Dayton's Africatown. The history of the First Wesleyan Methodist Church, 
1842 to 1914, was written by Joseph J. Wheeler. He writes, The first fire watchers in Dayton were those early Negroes who, as Aunt Charity Brody related, Instead of going to bed at night, we would gather and sit outside all night with our families to watch our roofs, lest some of the belligerent whites of the mob set fire to our homes and burn us alive. Working the least desirable and most strenuous of jobs, the labor of life for Dayton's black residents a sunset brought neither respite or relief, but rather a foreboding fear and the restless need for defensive preparedness. Instead of going to bed at night to rest our weary bodies, we would gather and sit outside all night in the elements of Ohio's seasons with our families babies in arms and in the womb to watch our roofs under which we cannot rest roofs under which our hard-working men cannot do not feel secure in the homes they built lest some of the belligerent whites of the mob our own neighbors set fire to our homes Homes they have watched us work and sacrifice to build. Set fire to our homes and burn, and burn us, alive. us alive. Living in fear of the reality will break you or breed unbridled confidence. Family oral histories tell the story of Charity as a fire watcher, mounting her horse to patrol Dayton streets, Bruin, Ziegler, Washington, and Eka streets. We visualize Charity galloping down Court and Ludlow, up Perry to South Short Wilkinson Street, places where blacks dare to start a life. Despite the season, whether a baby was in her belly or on her back, there was no rest for the weary of a mind and body. What remained was the inspiration of spirit. So she rode, lest some of the belligerent whites of the mob set fire to our homes and burn us alive. She rode and patrolled the night streets of Dayton into the dawn of a new day. This is the backdrop, the backstory, the before, during, and after the attack on Africatown, the extenuating circumstances of haunted blackness in Ohio's free Northwest Territory that was never free. We are the destiny, the legacy of Charity's children. We're our ancestors' wildest streams The descendants of kings and queens Like flowers rising from the bubble We were born to rise above the struggle We're our ancestors' wildest streams The descendants of 
next time on The Legacy of Charity's Children. Well-intentioned abolitionist speakers are the provocation for rage and terrorism inflicted on Dayton's prosperous Black Canal community of Africatown. Charity, the Davises and Broadies on the front lines next time on The Legacy of Charity's Children. The Legacy of Charity's Children is a production of The Legacy of Charity's Children, LLC. All copyrights reserved. Reproduction and redistribution of The Legacy of Charity's Children podcast without express written consent is prohibited. Charity's Children is a trademark of The Legacy of Charity's Children, LLC. Original scores by music director and engineer, Jared Griffin. Producers, Tamara Calvert and Jared Griffin. Project historian and researcher, Sherry Gowdy. Oral history consultant, Carolyn Lander. Marketing and publicity, LaCris Brody Robinson Jordan. Additional voices provided by Elliot Imani and Daryl Griffin, with Janetta Smith Lang as Julia Galloway Higgins and Charlest Moore Sweet as Charity Davis Caesar Brody. These stories are derived from family oral and written histories and confirmed by historical records. I am Patricia Smith Griffin, the fourth great-granddaughter of Charity Davis Caesar Brody, creator, writer, and executive producer. We are proud to share with you the legacy of Charity's children and hope that you are inspired to research and tell your Black family story because there is value and there is validation in every family story.